Thanks for downloading this episode of Historic Racing News. It's for personal use only and must not be broadcast, reproduced or used in any form without permission. Tell your friends they can get their own copy by searching for Historic Racing News wherever they get their podcasts. Welcome to the Historic Racing News Radio Show. Welcome to the Historic Racing News Radio Show. Our Insight Special for May is all about Can-Am. I'm joined by my regular co-hosts, Joe Bradley and Jim Roller. And in this episode, we'll also talk to Brian Redman about his memories of Can-Am, and particularly the accident which nearly ended his career. And Andrew Marriott will talk about getting very up close and personal with the McLaren Can-Am team. But first of all, let's look at the sports car scene in the US before Can-Am started. What was the scene like in in the US prior to 1966, Jim? Well, it was the United uh, States Road Racing Championship, USRRC, and it was run by the Sports Car Club of America, and it was pretty much the preeminent road racing series in in the United States. Um However, John Bishop at the SCCA and Jim Kaiser, uh, who is the competition director of the SCCA, Bishop was the executive director. And I mean, we're talking about a man. This was his first bold step. This was a guy who would eventually break away from the SCCA and form IMSA and brought us things like GTP. So this is a very forward thinking person in 1966. Uh, He wanted a racing series that would be just all out he he wanted something frankly that would challenge formula one Mm -hmm. um so he came up with this idea to run a series with basically very little rules it was very much an open series they wanted to run it in the fall so that he could get international people to come over and and race in it i mean it was it was well thought out as far as what they wanted to do and how they wanted to do it uh, they offered huge prize money, which was which was new. There was there was no appearance money, well, at least not publicly. Um, and then uh, how they wanted to attract everybody was uh, uh, with prize money. And so the, the in 1966 in February they announced the first series. It was going to be five races over nine weeks, starting in September. The uh, first race was at Saint-Juvie in Canada, the Mont-Tremblant circuit, and then all the rest of the races would be in the United States. The Canadian race had a $20,000 purse, and uh, all the rest had $30,000 purses that were were huge. That was huge money back in the day. The other other thing that happened was, is because a lot of the European teams, um, they balked at the no appearance money. Uh, McLaren, Teddy Mayer, you know, why, why should we come all the way over there if we're not, you know, guaranteed some money? So what they, uh, uh, Jim Kaiser went out and found Johnson Wax to put money into the series and became the first ever uh, series title sponsor in sport in sports car racing. And so it was the J-Wax champion, you know, Can-Am Challenge 
called Can-Am because there was a race in Canada and a race in, races in America. So the Can-Am challenge, the, the, um, addition of, of the JWAX money brought the, uh, total prize money, the, the, the championship prize money up to $350,000, which in today's money is $2.8 million. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, that, so then that got Jim, everybody, I, that got everybody's attention. Can I just, the, the thing is at, at that time, um, appearance money was more important than prize money. And so by only offering prize money and no appearance money, they were completely turning things on their head. And that's what the drivers were uh, against because um, you were kind of rolling the dice a bit to go out there, uh, incur the cost of running a race car and potentially not bringing home any prize money. And it, it wasn't until the figure went to, as you said, at today's standards, two point eight million. That that's what got the attention of the, certainly from the Europeans. Yeah, and I think I think also that we we had Group Seven sports cars before we had Can Am, but we hadn't developed those those real monsters at that stage. And and those cars in that first year, Jim, were really basic. Would it be fair to say? Yeah, they, they yes, they they were they were fairly basic. Um, the 66 cars, uh, the Lola T70 Mark II is what uh, John Surtees drove to the championship. Uh, McLaren showed up with an M1B, which was a new car. Uh, probably the most radical thing that happened uh, in in 66 was the Jim Hall Chaparral 2E showing up with a high wing. And this was two years before the FIA approved high wings. The rules, basically, yes, they, they followed the... Uh, Group Seven specifications, but they were probably even freer than than what the FIA would want because there there was no engine capacity limit, turbochargers and compressors were allowed, and there were no other technical in, uh, <laughs> restrictions at all. You had to have two seats, you had to have bodywork that enclosed the wheels, and a roll hoop. And uh, when they had the when they had the big announcement uh, in February, Mastin Gregory asked the question, well, what, what engine can I run? And uh, Bishop's response, <laughs> a really big one. Can I, can, I, <laughs> can I just say, you know what? The, I've, I've thought about this a lot over the, the past week or so when we've been researching this. And I, I don't think I've ever worked or run in any series, whether it be in karting or, you know, even British touring cars when I worked in British touring cars that didn't run to a regulation. So when you were thinking of things and ways to make the car go quicker somehow, you were, you know, you were kind of erring on the, well, quite frankly, you were trying to cheat. Now, yeah. to open that up to a, a free reign with very little regulations, it was basically just down to you. Have You know, you can think of anything you want to make that car go quicker around the corners and faster down the straights. That, that is just something that modern day race engineers and designers who are always working to, especially, I mean, if you look at Formula One, that's, yeah, that's why all the cars look the same. We're sharpening yeah. a razor blade. And it's just the, the idea that we're, we're always looking for ways of getting our cart or our race car to go quicker, but we're always going to be erring on the side of cheating. And that just wasn't a thing back then. No, I think, and I think that's great for for that that very reason that you didn't 
you didn't have anybody cheating because there was nothing to cheat. You know? That's, right. I, I, That's I, right. I love I love your your comment, Jim. That you know the rules were that you had to have body work. You, you have, so rule one you used to have you had to have body work. Rule two was that you had to have a roll hoop. Rule three is there is no rule three. Yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. and, you know, yeah. So I think that's and, and, that's and absolutely brilliant. I found a great I found a great quote from uh, from Phil Hill, um, and it was uh, about the two E, which was the high wing car, because not only was it a high wing car, it was movable. So this is again we will we'll we'll discuss movable parts because it uh, uh, Chaparral was always on the on the cutting edge, and and he did something in in 1970 that is that we'll get to in a moment that was just outlandish. But uh, Phil Hill said the 2E was very easy to drive. Left foot on the brake. You're going to love this, Joe. Right foot on the go pedal. There was no clutch, just a two-speed fluid torque converter. When you were braking, you kept your left foot on the fail-safe pedal. This kept the wing flat. When you took your foot off the pedal, the wing automatically flipped to the high performance position and you could feel the difference immediately. It it lowered the top speed by at least 25 miles per hour. So the, <laughs> the wing was being used as not only an arrow aid to keep the back of the car down. When you took your foot off the safe pedal, it brought the wing up, which helped slow the car down like an air brake. Logic. So DRS is nothing new, is it? Yes. <laughs> you know what, Paul? That is exactly what that is. It That's is. exactly it what is. it is. It's DRS. I think there's, there's a great symmetry that prior to Can-Am, probably the the archetypal big banger sports car was uh, was a thing known as the Xerox Special, mm. uh, which which I, I can remember as a child. As a child, I'll say that. I can remember seeing it at Brands Hatch, which was a Cooper, um, a, an old Formula One Cooper T53 that was bought by Bruce McLaren and he put a a big um, Traco automobile V8 in the back of it and that he, he developed that and then sold it to Roger Penske who raced it and I think there's a lovely symmetry there that, that you've got the original big banger sports car developed by Bruce McLaren and then run by Roger Penske. Isn't that a beautiful symmetry for Canna? <laughs> it, re- it really is. It really is. It, it, and it also, guys, uh, in the second iteration of Canna, which we'll talk about, which were rebodied single seaters, it was going all the way back to the very beginning. Yes. It wasn't yeah. new and innovative yeah. in any way. Yeah. That's yeah. where it kind of started. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. exactly. You're, you're, you're absolutely right there. And I think that, you know, that there are... I think Jim, you you hit the nail on the head when you said about no rules because it's it's created something which we've never seen since really, and and I think that's that's great. We talked about the the iterations of Can Am, and probably you can look at three, which is the original Can Am as as we've talked about it so far with McLaren and Shadow. We've talked about the Porsche domination years, which weren't very many. Um, and then the single-seater formula, which was probably a slightly more more complex formula anyway. So it's it's into three bits, and we'll break down those three bits as we go along. Jim, you, you saw Can-Am races. Joe, neither you nor I ever did. And uh, 
that therefore we're talking from a sort of third party. But somebody who did actually have his finger on the pulse on in motorsport back in those days is Andrew Marriott. And you, you caught up and uh, shared some views with him. So, Andrew, I want to take this opportunity to talk to you about Can-Am and the Can-Am series. And firstly, with your sports marketing hat on from, and all of your sports marketing uh, experience from around that sort of early 70s period, the Can-Am series in the 60s was the very first series to actually be sponsored as a series rather than individual sponsorship. Well, indeed, yes, John, but it actually predates uh, my period in sports marketing. I was a, a journalist at Motoring News when it kicked off in 1966. A very shiny sponsorship indeed, Johnson's <laughs> Wax. Um, they were backing the series, but lots of other uh, companies also backed cars. And the one that worked the hardest was probably Liggett and Meyer Cigarettes. Uh, and the, for a while, they sponsored uh, Jackie Stewart, of course, in Alola. But yes, I mean, it was a hugely professional series and um, got all the big names. I was just looking at the list of the people who won, and there were sort of two phases. The the big famous phase, of course, was with the um, cars powered by the 8-litre Chevy engines and and later the Porsches from 66 to 74. And every one of the champions was actually a regular Formula 1 driver. Mm. So it was their their second... uh, second drive really and and they probably earned some of them certainly earned more money out of racing in the can-am than they actually did in formula one yeah i was i was going to say that it, it was a richer series wasn't it? it and what so that's obviously the attraction for the likes of i, I suppose by today's standards that's like a lewis hamilton and a, and a charles leclerc going across and racing in imza because of the purse available yeah absolutely but of course also some of the teams were also uh, the same as the Formula One team, and I think particularly, of course, of McLaren, who, who dominated the, the series from 1967 through to 71 with what they called what Bruce and Denny show. Well, the 71, of course, was a, a, a different year because uh, Bruce had been killed and Peter Revson mm. took over um, the second of those particular orange McLarens. I mean, awesome machines, um, mm. faster than Formula One cars, um, most of them had eight liter Chevrolet uh, V8 engines in with a huge, great. You might have ever seen the cars, huge, great um, fuel injection trumpets sticking out of them. And uh, the best part of 800 horsepower. And we'll come to it later, uh, mm. Joe, but I know what it felt like to go in one of those cars. Yeah, I mean, you, you've got a. What, what were you telling me? You, you were at Goodwood with De, as a passenger of, of Denny Hulme. I'm looking up on my office wall and looking at a photograph oh. of me alongside Denny Holm in the number five Golf McLaren. And that was early in 1971 because the series was, didn't really start until June, the series. And that, then it went through to September uh, or October. And mm. so this was at the 71 uh, after Bruce had been killed uh, at the same track, which made your heart beat a bit uh, uh, fast. Yes. And, yeah. um, and Denny was there testing. And I think four or five of us were invited along to, to go and have a ride. And there was me, there was the f- famous journalist, Alan Henry. There was the Guardian writer, Eric Dimmock. Now, he only did two laps because he banged. The deal was, if you didn't like it, it was too fast for you. You'd tap Denny on the helmet and <laughs> uh, and they came in and, and Eric couldn't take it. And I can't remember who the fourth person was. Anyway, um, just think about this. No yeah. safety belts. 
So you, it was a very <clears throat> tight space. So I'm just looking at this photo now. And I had my right arm behind me hanging onto the brace bar of the roll cage. <laughs> and the most, I mean, it, the most phenomenal thing you would think would be the acceleration with that eight litre motor. But it wasn't. It was the braking. The braking was unbelievable. Uh, Denny went out and the first, I think we did about five laps. The first three laps, I was totally disorientated. You know, it, mm. it just, you just couldn't cope with the speed. And then, of course, your brain starts to catch up a little bit. And the last couple of laps, I really enjoyed. Now, I knew Denny pretty well and um, had been to his house and, and, and so on. And so I, I said, you know, don't spare the horses, mate. <laughs> I rather wish I hadn't said it. It was the most <laughs> mind-blowing thing I've ever done in my life. I've wow. been in a few racing cars since then. And another very quick one was actually a, 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 the Le Mans uh, Nissan with, I think it was Julian Bailey, some years later at Donington. But this was another dimension um, when it was just so fast. I believe we did one minute, eight seconds, which is like around the lap record. It was phenomenal. I'll never forget it. Now, just should add here on this, I've just completed my, my autobiography stroke book of silly stories. It's going to be yeah. actually out in October. And I've, I've just found some more photographs that I've got to the, the LAT photographic agency. They've been through their files and they found, I, I only had two pictures, one of me actually in the car and one, and one of me climbing in, but they found some more. So I'm going to use those in the book, but it, was a, it was a mind blowing experience. That that's worth a, a whole chapter of its own, I would imagine. The, ah, well, yeah. The, we we talk we talk about these cars being quite visceral. I would imagine from where without being strapped in, you you were holding yourself not just under acceleration, but through the corners and on the braking. I'm I'm, imagine, I, I'm amazed that you didn't just plop out. No, um, incredible. You had to brace yourself with your feet. And then, say, you've got this arm hooked round behind you, round the roll cage, and and that was it. I mean, I mean, I don't know how close Bruce was. To, I'm sorry, Denny was to the limit, but um, yeah, he wasn't far off. I can tell you, it, wow, was, it was just incredible. incredible. And but I did go to some of the races as well. Not very many, actually, because we had a very good um, motoring news. That we had a very good correspondent. Um, that covered uh, those races, Don Gray. And, of course, the other journalist, Pete Lyons, very famous American writer, yeah. he, he was doing for Autosport at the time. And um, it, it was, because it all started the first year, it, it had grown out of another championship. But basically, there was very few rules to these. There were, you know, there, it was obviously wide bodies, you know, if you, if you know what a Callum car looks like. They had more mm. downforce in the Formula One car, car of course, because of the, the shape of the body. And mm -hmm. it started with, you know, John Surtees um, won the first uh, year with a Lola T, open Lola T70 Spider. But then, because then McLaren really put something into it with the succession of the M6A and then the M8A, B, D, and finally F. It was the M8F that I actually rode in in 1971. And Bruce and Danny, I mean, they, they did uh, demoralise the rest of the opposition, really. It's a bit like Lewis Hamilton and McLaren at the moment. Yeah. They definitely had the best car. And they had the best organisation as well. But in 71, um, after Bruce had been killed, um, Peter Revson, um, the guy who looked more like a racing driver than anybody else you could ever think of, um, who, who was a wonderful guy, actually, and came from the Revlon family. So he was, a sort of, he was a sort of rich kid, but he was a great racer. He won the championship in 71. And then Porsche came in, of course. Um, they decided it was a great series to promote their brand in America, or break, promote the, the, the uh, Porsche brand with Penske Racing 
running it. And it was a very interesting. If you check the records, you see in 19, mm. 1972, the Can-Am champion was George Fulmer. Well, yeah. it should have been David Hobbs. What happened was that, obviously, they were only running one car for Mark Donoghue. But the um, bodywork came off on the test before the, uh, the first race. Mark crashed badly, rode a lanter, and actually it, it broke his leg. And so Dan Luganbuehl III, who was a f- the famous sort of wingman for Roger uh, Penske, rang David Hobbs up and said, um, would, you, would you like to take over this, this Porsche for two or three races? Now, David had a contract with um, Carl Haas to race the Lola T310 and, and hadn't even tested at this time. But he had a contract, so he, um, he had to think about it. And he talked to the chief uh, mechanic at, at Haas, who's a guy called Jim Chapman. He said, oh, yeah, the 310 is going to be a, a great car. And that Porsche turbo engine, it's never going to work, you know. You better stay <laughs> with us. And David, he didn't like breaking contracts. So <laughs> that's what he did. He stayed with the Lola. George Fulmer then got the drive, an American. And he won two of the first four races and then... Uh, Donahue came back later than expected. And so then Roger Penske, Penske decided and persuaded Porsche to run a second car. So Fulmer continued in that second car and he won the championship. So with George Fulmer and Mark Donahue at Penske, they, they dominated 72 and 73 uh, right after the McLaren domination. But that there was, a, there was an interjector, wasn't there, in 74, who'd been in the series the previous few years, and that was Shadow. And that absolutely beautiful DN4 came came into its own in 74, Andrew. Yeah, and Jackie Oliver still around, of course, and a former Team Lotus uh, driver and very much part of the Shadow and then the Arrows teams. Yeah, he won the championship that year, and it was a beautiful-looking car. Want to find out more, there's a brand-new book out, actually, by by the American journalist Pete Lyons, I mentioned before. So that will give you all the uh, background information on that. But then at the end of 74, the series stopped for a couple of years, Joe. Why why is that then? Because I remember the fuel crisis. Well, I I was about 10 years old, but the fuel crisis of that period, 73, 74. And was it a a sort of a moral, on moral grounds that the the series dissolved? Because you can't really be running big V8 American muscle car, 600 brake horsepower and pouring gallons of fuel when you can't get fuel at the pumps to take you to work. Joe, a thousand horsepower, not 600. Thousand, yeah, of course. In 73, 74, a thousand horsepower. You're right. So if you, you're fueling your thousand horsepower race car, yeah. but you can't get to work because you can't get any fuel at the pumps. No, was that, uh, do you think, was that the reason or? Not the only reason. Uh, right. You know, the, because they hadn't got so many competitors anymore. It was all part of the same sort of deal, really. And because McLaren weren't in there anymore and, and Porsche had pulled out. So it, it was, I mean, the shadow won it and the series was a shadow of its former self, really. So then it stopped and the Sports Car Club of America decided to stop it. Uh, but then again, it, it started in 1977. Again. Yes. It was totally different, though, wasn't it? It was kind of like, I, I, from kind of the perspective that I had as, a, as a, a, an interested spectator across the pond, um, the planets aligned. The Formula 5000 series was fizzling away. The Can-Am had stopped. And there was kind of like a clash of these two great series came together, didn't they? Yeah, absolutely right. There was a big clash. There were big rivals, those two series. And really, American couldn't sustain both of them. But strangely enough, it was a sort of marriage because in 1977, they started a series again. And the Lola T332, which was the Formula 5000 car, 
was uh, cleverly by uh, Lola and it, and very much uh, Carl Haas involved um, with with a, a wide body, although the driver still sat in the middle without riggers on. And so those cars had a new lease of life. And uh, Haas and uh, the Haas Hall Racing, it was called then, um, then dominated that series with those cars for the next four years. Uh, and then uh, Jeff Brabham won in, in uh, 81. And, the, and then we had the cars called the Frisbees, which were successful mm. uh, four out of the five years towards the end. But it was a shadow of its former self. Um, and it just didn't have the profile that it had. But a, pick, a quick a shout out for the Irish driver, Michael Rowe, who won it in 1984 for the famous VDS team, you know, Count van der Straat yeah. for the Beer Magnets team. He won it in 84. Uh, I mean, the last year it was won by a guy called Bill Tempero. I have no idea who he was, Texas yeah. American racing team. But um, I, when, when that series kicked off, though, Andrew, 77, well, 77, 78 and onwards, Patrick Tombe, Alan Jones, Jackie Hicks, Patrick Tombe, yeah, Jeff Brabham. Yeah. Alonzo Jr. was next in 82, Jack Villeneuve Sr. before Michael Rowe in 84. I mean, those yeah. names, when the series kicked off again, they were Formula One drivers, and, and Jackie Hicks was a complete legend. Yeah, absolutely. But but the series just didn't seem to have the cachet, really. Um, mm. It was a more vanilla version of it, just because those, those previous cars, you know, had the 800 horsepower McLarens and then then the 1,000 horsepower turbocharged Porsches, um, you know, that they were in a different league or probably some of the fastest racing cars, most powerful racing cars that ever built. I didn't go to too many Can-Am races, but I did go to Edmonton, Alberta, um, another track on my uh, long list. And um, <laughs> I remember that for some reason, Lee Marvin was there as some sort of guest or, or sort of um, sort of a starter, sort of VIP starter. Um, I did try and talk to him, but he, he, I think he'd had a drink or two, actually. <laughs> um, he was a bit of a rough and ready character. But um, I also remember, silly aside, one of my silly sides is that I bought a pair in a, a shop in Edmonton of suede leather trousers, sort of cowboy trousers. <laughs> I was very, very proud of these, and I wore them to a few parties. Uh, and then, of course, uh, later, I couldn't get into them. They didn't have much stretch, I can tell you that. And then, <laughs> more recently, I've, um, I've lost uh, some weight since those days, um, because I did enjoy myself back in those days. And these trousers now fit again. No, no. <laughs> I did wear them to something about two or three years ago, yeah. Um, but anything like that doesn't deteriorate, does it? And do you know what? Another thing I remember, for some reason, I forgot to hand the, the, the hotel key in, which has some great brass thing on the end. And that came all the way back to England. But I did put it in an envelope and send it back. <laughs> Funny how <laughs> you get those. these things. You, you no, wouldn't no, get no. either of those things through security these days, I hope. No. The velvet, the, the, the switch oh, no. trousers and the brass key. Um, <laughs> I suppose to to close on then, Andrew. When, when certainly when someone says "Can Am" to me, I immediately think of the Bruce and Denny show, the the McLaren yeah. domination, and maybe you know the pet. I, I very rarely think about the second iteration, even though I've seen those cars now in historics. When I if I yeah. was to say when I said to you when I rang you last week and said I want to talk to you about Can Am, where where did your mind take you? What what's the epitome of the Can Am series? Well, oh, God, straight to the Bruce and Denny show and straight straight to being driven around Goodwood by Denny, of course, yeah. which has been a highlight of my whole career. And obviously, you know, in the position we are, Joe, we get driven in quite a lot of racing cars. But, I mean, and you've obviously raced your Formula Fords and all that sort of yeah. stuff. 
Um, but this was just another dimension. Yeah, that's, it was yeah, another. I, bet. I know. I know. Subsequently, you know, there's been the odd two-seater Formula One car. I would suggest that I went much quicker than anybody's ever gone in one of those. Yeah, I think I think you're right, Andrew. Andrew, it was great to talk to you, and uh, I look forward to talking to you again. And I'm certainly looking forward to this book of yours coming out. Yeah, thanks very much. But if you people are interested in the Canam series, there's lots of good books. But I really would recommend the books by by Pete Lyons. They they tell you the whole story. He was there in all the races. The historic racing news radio show. It's always fabulous to talk to Marriott, isn't it? And Andrew. Uh, sharing that experience, that must have been something else. Um, you know, hanging on for grim death uh, without <laughs> any belts in that McLaren. I'm surprised he didn't just blow out of the car. Um, but we were talking, Jim, about the the, the 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 start of the series and the thing that struck me. One of the one of the best stories I've ever heard is is how John Surtees won that first championship, and it wasn't just straightforward. All right, there was drivers coming from Europe and. Let's just consider that John Surtees was by then a two-year-old um, Formula One world champion with Ferrari. He walked away with Ferrari. Uh, nothing out of character for John Surtees to uh, disagree with anyone, but he walked away from Ferrari <laughs> in, the, in the middle of 66, which then freed him up. Uh, he was out of contract. He didn't have to uh, – he wasn't constricted by the confines of the Ferrari contract. So he decided to go Can-Am, and he – he got this Lola T70, and the story is that he bought a Chevrolet, I think it was a Chevrolet van, and himself and a mechanic, who he called his number one, he acted as the number two mechanic, and him and this one guy prepped that car, not just for one race, but he went on and took the championship. That, I mean, that if that's not the epitome of, of any kind of going motor racing, I don't know what is. Everybody always talks about how McLaren dominated the Can-Am. Well, in fact, the first couple of years, um, uh, in the first championship went to John Surtees. Mark Donahue finished second in another Lola, and Bruce McLaren finished third. So it wasn't until 67 that McLaren started to find its, uh, find its footing. But John Surtees carried on competing in the Can-Am for many years after that, he finished third in the series in the in '67. He was competitive for many many years, running various uh, various operations of his own, and then for for other teams as well. Yeah, brilliant. In in '67, McLaren showed up with the M6A, and I thought this was really interesting because it's, uh, probably McLaren aficionados know this, but a lot of people in the states don't. Robin Hurd uh, was the designer of that car. And uh, Teddy Mayer and Bruce hired him away from the Concorde project. He, wow. had, uh, he had helped design the Concorde, which was a supersonic airplane that, that flew across the Atlantic for many years. And uh, he came over as a designer and was responsible for the M6A. Another interesting thing happened there, and this is, uh, p- people don't give this enough credit, I don't think. McLaren uh, was smart enough. He found his own tire manufacturer. He switched from Firestone to Goodyear because Goodyear would design a tire for him. And Robin ended up changing some of the rear suspension on the car to fit the tires better. And that really opened up um, opened up the series. Uh, McLaren's won five of the six races in 1967. Denny Hume came in to uh, replace Chris Amon, who'd gone to Ferrari to replace Surtees, <laughs> and, 
And Surtees won one of the races, Hume and, and Bruce McLaren. Hume won three races and Bruce won, won two races. There's, so, a great, there's a great tyre story, Jim. You mentioned tyres and tyre development. We kind of, at least I do, I kind of take for granted that, that Can-Am cars have this, these big, wide tyres. But they didn't start like that. And the transition from the, uh, uh, the sports cars of 65 into 66 and into Can-Am, and then we saw the width of the tyres grow uh, to a massive, I think, 15-inch on the rear or something uh, mad like that. But back in 66, when there was a lot of experimentation going on and tyre width in IndyCar was, was expanding and getting wider and wider, Jim Hall tells a great story of how um, I think he had a seven-inch tyre um, that he then put on. They then thought, again, this is innovation. This is just let's let's try and see what happens, guys. I love that. Um, so they stretched the tyre onto a nine-inch rim. And the tyre guys from Firestone came along and went, whoa, you, you can't do that. You shouldn't be doing that. Um, you can't stretch that nine-inch tyre, uh, that seven-inch tyre onto a nine-inch rim. Here, next race they turn up, there they've got a nine-inch wide tyre. Guess what they did? They stretched that onto an 11-inch rim, <laughs> and, and so on and so forth until they get to where you know where, where we saw you know the the, the wide tires of uh, of that period going into the set towards the 70s. Uh, I thought that was great. Once again, just pushing that envelope. But it's interesting hearing you talk about tires there because I know one of your favourite manufacturers of all time, like me, is Shadow, and yeah. that the the original stark raving mad shadow <laughs> can-am car was really built around the firestone tires which uh, don nichols was able to persuade firestone to build wasn't it now, yes are you, are you talking about the abs shadow that showed up in 1970 um the, the, that's that one that looked like a, a birel go-kart the, the trevor yes, harris yes. yeah the trevor harris yeah. designed one yeah yes that was called grotesque by yeah. George Fulmer. <laughs> George Fulmer and, and uh, Quick Vic, Vic Elford, yeah. were, drove it. and Tiny they, little wheels. A ridiculous thing. And they're not my words. You know, that, yes. that's not my words. And they were, they are thankful that they're still alive from that experience. <laughs> Twitchy, yeah. I think, is what they said. Yeah, I mean, it, it looks absolutely mad. But Shadow had, had a role to play very much in Can-Am, didn't they? Oh, very much so. In, in 68 and 69, can, uh, the series grew, um, adding races. They went to Edmonton for the first time. The series just continued to grow. In 69, uh, it was actually the end of the USRRC, so the series was able to expand to 11 races. They brought in uh, Montremblant. They brought that back, which is San Jovit. They added Watkins Glen, Mid-Ohio, Michigan, and Texas World Speedway which were both super speedways where Michigan and Texas World Speedway outside of Austin um, were or actually outside of uh, uh, College Station where Texas A&M is, not, not, uh, not Austin. Um, and, um, yeah. So with, with those things, Jim, that was, was Can-Am about um, bums on seats, to put, it, uh, to put it indelicately, in terms of the spectator attendance, or was it a TV show? Oh, it was butts and seats. There was very little TV of the series, which is another amazing thing that it was so popular. Given today's standards, with no TV, you wouldn't you wouldn't even um, uh, you know you you wouldn't even get a sniff. 
Um, I've got some stats, but, guys, on but, on who, how many people turned up at San Gervais yeah. for the first round. Yeah, fifty-five thousand spectators. That's right. That's right. And see, the okay. other th- the other thing that they did at Watkins Glen was they combined it with the six-hour uh, World Sports Car Championship race that they had. So you had uh, on Sunday, you had uh, it was the first appearance of of, uh, of Porsche because they ran nine oh eights. Eamon ran six twelve P. Um, you know, you had a lot of the, those cars switching over. Um, and, uh, in later years, it, it actually proved to be the, the kind of a sea change moment because when the 917K came along, uh, and ran on Saturday, again, that was, uh, probably, well, I think that was 1971. I think that they actually ran on, on Saturday, um, I'll have to look through my... Yeah, it, no, actually it was 70. So the first Can-Am that I was lucky enough to go to was 1970. And it was at Watkins Glen, and it was when the 2J showed up. Now, the Chaparral 2J is the car that had the two fans at the back that sucked the car down to the road. Jackie Stewart drove the car at Watkins Glen, and Vic Elford went on to drive the car uh, at later races. It was uh, on the pole at Laguna Seca, but blew an engine in warm-up. It was on the pole again at Riverside, but the motor motor uh, uh, fan failed. And everybody... All, it, all, it, was all, a, it was a snowmobile motor, wasn't it, Jim? That There was a, snow, yeah, a, yeah. It was a snowmobile well, yes, motor mounted yes. on the back of the car that worked the fans to suck it to the ground. That's right. That's that's exactly right. And this is, you know, since, since 1970, there was a lot of innovation. It's when the AVS Shadow that we were joking about came in. It's when the, the, the 2J showed up. But on the Can-Am race on Sunday, the world makes cars finish second through seventh. Um, Hume won the race in the in a McLaren M8D, that famous, uh, that famous wonderful McLaren. But 917s and a Ferrari 512 Spider finished fifth through seventh. So it was the first time that the Can-Am cars were not faster as a whole than the World Mace cars and the Formula One cars. So the world was, uh, for intents and purposes, catching up with um, with with uh, the, the, the Can-Am series as far as technology goes. Uh, McLaren won nine of the 10 races. Tony Dean in a Porsche 908 won at Road Atlanta. And that was the only car to, uh, to, to not, to not win. So, um, you know, and then, then of course, along came Porsche. Yeah, that was, that was the first sniff that Porsche was, was coming into the series. Uh, the, the J2 was banned in 71. Uh, all moving arrow devices. Uh, McLaren argued, <laughs> "This is this is great." Uh, <laughs> McLaren argued that the J2 would kill Can-Am by dominating it. Uh, <laughs> at that point, McLaren had won 29 of 33 races since 1967. <laughs> so um, I certainly hope Teddy Mayer had his tongue firmly in his cheek when he said that. <laughs> that that's pretty typical of Teddy Mayer, though. He was a he was. He was a, a lawyer by profession, wasn't he? He was always yeah. looking at uh, creating unrest. And, yeah, the audacity of saying that somebody's going to dominate this series is just laughable, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. So but those, 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 in, in 71, Jackie Stewart came in in the Lola T260. Uh, and then Porsche really started to, to kind of stick its uh, nose under the tent a little bit. Dick Barber 
believe it or not. Big Dick really? was uh, in a 908. Can you imagine? Dick was never a, no, a, a small guy. <laughs> so uh, shoehorning uh, Dick Barber into a 908. Uh, Milt Minter, uh, Vervasic Pollock, uh, drove a 917 PA. Joe Siffert uh, raced at the first 91710 that was at Watkins Glen in 1971. And they wanted to, they, he found STP sponsorship on Saturday afternoon after the makes race. And they had to somehow Saturday night turn the car into a red car. So they literally used racer tape and const- red construction paper to um, <laughs> cover the car in red so that it would have the STP, STP red. And also in 1971, the, the new Shadow Mark II appeared, and that one appeared at San Jovite. And uh, Jackie Oliver uh, had a big uh, a big crash uh, at San Jovite, much uh, as we'll hear uh, about Brian Redmond's big crash, flipping over backwards. That You know what? Wait, the first race of the Can-Am, before we even got to a green flag to start the race, we had uh, a car flipped over. And um, and took off, and I think that was followed in the next practice session by the same thing. And it was, I think, the story is that all the um, sheet aluminium was bought up in the local area, and people started grafting strips of uh, sheet aluminium to create winglets and front air dams to stop the cars getting light. And it was, um, it was, it was the the going over the hill at San Gervais, which is a very steep hill. And uh, they'd, they'd lost two cars before the series even got underway. And th- thankfully, the drivers survived. They, were, they weren't hurt at all by this. And um, the, the story is that Can-Am could well have ground to a halt before it even got started because if someone had been killed in practice, then the series sponsor, remember, very first time you have a commercial sponsor for a race series, uh, the JWAC sponsor might have walked away. And there's deliberation as to, you know, we can debate all day whether that would have been the case. But the case was nobody was killed. Everybody survived, thankfully. Uh, and it certainly wasn't the, uh, the, the, the last of Can-Am cars to take off. Uh, but that was co- quite commonplace. Yeah, I actually had that wrong. It was uh, 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 Jackie Oliver flipped in 70 in the second round of the series. It wasn't Shanjavit, but it was in an Auto Coast TI-22, um, not the Shadow. So my, my apologies to Don Nichols and everybody um, that the, he, he had to flip the year before the, the Shadow uh, that he raced at Sanjavit in, and, uh, and we, in Jim, in we've, come to, we've come to know the the Porsche steamroller and and everything that that meant. Um, I think it's it's interesting that it's the Porsche steamroller, but it was never really the McLaren steamroller. But they were <laughs> exactly <laughs> they, they were different but similar, weren't they? Very very much so. Um, Porsche got very serious, and and part of what happened was uh, they had they kind of stuck their toe in the water. Uh, Vasek Pollock uh, was selling cars uh, here in the states, and and he was looking to find ways to to market uh, out on the west coast. Joe Hoppen had taken over uh, uh, Porsche and Audi operations uh, here in the United States, and he was he was looking to make his mark. And and incidentally, uh, in 19, at the end of 1971, uh, 
when um, Porsche really started to to make some inroads in in the Can-Am series. Sifford finished uh, fourth in the series. He had uh, second place finishes at Mid-Ohio and Road America and then finished in the top five in all the other races he entered. So he was really becoming a, a, a thing. Um, the FIA, after the 917K, had won the world sports car titles in 70 and 71, cut the displacement to three liters. And that meant that Porsche had the 4.5 liter flat 12 that needed a home. Well, where better to to give it a home than the Can-Am where there really weren't any engine rules to to limit what they were able to do. And they picked Roger Penske to 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 champion the program. And he took it over in, in 1972 with the 917-10. And the 917-10 was a pretty diabolical car to drive. Um, he, um, the, the guys that, that many, many people uh, raced it. It wasn't just Donahue. Donahue uh, was the first, but Peter Gregg had one. Milt Mintner had one. Uh, there were lots of folks. Uh, and um, uh, Donahue was, uh, uh, was hurt in a testing crash uh, prior to the Road Atlanta race. Uh, the rear deck came off. It was a crash that was very similar to what happened to Bruce McLaren. And Donahue was injured uh, pretty badly. And um, they hired George Fulmer to, to replace him, and he won at Road Atlanta, and that gave the 917-10 its, its first victory. Um, and in 73, Porsche showed up with the 917-30. So you had Penske running the 917-30s. You had a bunch of privateers running the 917-10s. And they took uh, five of the top six places in the points. Uh, The 917-10 or the 917-30 won all the races in 1973. And so, you know, the 917-30 won its first race at the Glen in 73. So in 72 and 73 it was it was all about all about Porsches um and at the same time Jwax had kind of uh reduced its funding so the prize fund went away so there was it was starting to be the 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 beginning of of the end of the series the series was cut down to nine races in um in 72 and it was cut down to eight races in um, in '73, and uh, but a, a lot of people uh, thought that Porsche w- w- was the one that killed the series. And Brian Redman told us this: Canam simply it basically went out of business in '74 because Porsche had come in initially in '69 with a regular 917 PA with four and a half liter engine and then in 70 with another five liter engine car which again driven by Joseph had done very well but couldn't compete with the high end you know, high horsepower of the McLarens and, uh, and Lola's etc etc but then Porsche came in big time of course with the turbo 917-10 which was unbelievable and this was a Penske deal and that Porsche effectively killed Canel because partially the cost of the cars at a million dollars each. Brian's thoughts there that Porsche killed the Can-Am, it was kind of universal. 
uh, in the United States anyway. I'm not sure what it was like in Europe, guys, but I think they got a bad rap on that because, mm. as as I said, J-Wax had dropped out in 72. There was uh, the in 74, we had the fuel crisis. So uh, things were getting a little weird in 73 and 74 with racing in the United States. There was uh, the, the fuel crisis in 74 really, really hurt a lot of uh, of racing in the States. I mean, Sebring was canceled. Um, yeah. there, there were a lot of things that happened in 74 that really – there was a general malaise in the SCCA. Road racing had kind of fallen on hard times. So I, I think it's a little unfair to completely blame Porsche, considering how many years McLaren dominated. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. I think that it's probably these days people would talk about it as as bad PR that it was the Bruce and Denny show, and people kind of loved Bruce and Denny, and that although they were dominating everything, they they had the crowd on their side, and by and large, uh, but the the Porsche thing was seen as the steamroller, and. It, whether that was just that, um, that Bruce and Denny and McLaren cars were the, the brave little company fighting all the, the big corporations, I don't know. They, they may, certainly from a competitive element, they did exactly the same as what McLaren did. And that didn't deter people from coming to and taking on McLaren all those years prior to that. Um, if you... I, I, this is to the listeners. If you, if you uh, want to know more about this period of racing, there is a fabulous thing available on YouTube, and it's it's called the Legends of Can-Am, and it's from the oh, 2005. It's from the 2005 Amelia Allen Concours, and it's one of Bill Warner's brilliant forums, and he's got everybody who is anybody on that top table talking about this period, what we're talking about, and Bill's closing question to everyone, and Brian Redman was one of the people sat there, was what killed Can-Am, and it's incredible the differences of opinion as to what actually killed Canam, And what I took from it was that I don't think you can actually pinpoint one thing that killed Canam. I think it was a, an aligning of the planets, if you like, um, where there was a multitude of elements, such as the fuel crisis. It was very much frowned upon running um, a, a thousand brake horsepower, 1100 brake horsepower, Big engine, big block engine, eight cylinders, when you and and filling the cars with gallons and gallons of fuel when you couldn't get it from your local service station to go to work in, you know yeah. there was people really short on fuel. So that that so that was bad. That was a sort of portraying a bad image. That coupled with the as Jim mentioned the commercial sponsor pulling out and the purse reducing to not really compete with what the expenditure was to race in the series. Basically a trophy. Yeah, which was basically <laughs> a trophy, which I think I've only ever driven, raced for ever. Um, that cup, And then add in the element that Porsche, with the Porsche technology, had raised the bar technically. So to compete with that, you were having to match their expenditure or indeed exceed it to beat, to beat it technically. I personally think it was a I think it was all of those elements coming together that killed the series off. And I don't think you can I, I disagreed with Brian there, but Brian, Brian may have had a, a, a personal agenda there, which has brought him to that opinion, though. 
Well, don't forget, guys, in, in 1974, they also, it was the, the first time an engine rule came in. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Because, because, because of the fuel crisis, the cars had to get three miles per gallon. And that chased Porsche away. That chased the seven-liter Chevys away. Uh, and, and it was unfortunate because my favorite Can-Am car of all time is the is the DN4. I mean, I just yeah. those UOP shadows just did it for me. And I don't know whether it was because I was 13, 14 years old at the time and, and everything else. But but it was so sad to see the, the series go away. They had six scheduled races. The finale at Riverside never even came off. So they ended up running five races. Uh, the shadow guys uh, pretty much pretty much dominated the race, but Porsche was able to come back for one race, and I actually have a picture in my office of a Porsche 91730 uh, racing at Mid Ohio against the two UOP shadows, and I always wondered how did that happen because I knew the 91730 was. Uh, was not uh, was not racing in in 1974, but it did at Mid Ohio, and Brian Redmond tells us why and how. They changed the rules because the race promoters had had such great crowds for Can-Am that they saw changing the name and changing the cars as being their salvation. It wasn't really that; it was that the general public interest in road racing was going down, you know, to being steadily going downhill. So I go to San Javit in Canada for the first race, and the car had been tested by Francois at the Midland you know, Rattlesnake race, where he admitted. Then he said, well, it's not too bad. And so out I go in it for the first time, and it was good. You know, it was very good, and we were substantially ahead of the field at that stage, like two seconds a lot faster. And I came in, and Jim said, how is it? I said, it's pretty good. And he said, what do you want? You know, change the anything, change it. I said, take quarter of an inch off the front wing, lower it, take a bit of downforce off the front. And on the next lap at 170 miles an hour on the straight, it took off, went straight in the air. 40 feet in the air, turned upside down and came down. So it shot up the road upside down, the roll bar broke. And fortunately, as it rolled off the road, as it came to a halt, it went off the road and there was a, cat, there was a, a slight drop and it came on its wheels again. And... Uh, the doctor arrived, who fortunately was a heart specialist and got my heart going again, which had stopped. And then the ambulance blew a tire on the way to hospital. And uh, when Marion arrived from England the next day, the headline in the Montreal paper was Redman Moore. Redman is dead. And it showed a photograph of the ambulance with the two guys working on the wheel. The doors were open and me in the back not looking too great. So, Paul and Joe, for the want of some slicks, Brian Redman and the 917.30 might have actually taken a victory in 1974. Great story. I, Typical I, for I, Brian. I just love that. I just love that. How much do you want? Uh, how could it, how, well, firstly, how could it race? How could it race? Don't worry about that. How much do you want? Uh, $5,000. Uh, Brian, you're the most reasonable racing driver I've ever met. Oh, damn, I wish I'd said ten. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't that doesn't include VAT. Brian raced a Ferrari in the Can Am uh, earlier. Uh, it was at Watkins Glen. Sam Posey had broken his ankle uh, in a in a practice crash. It was in the, one of the Nart Ferraris, and it came down to David Hobbs and Brian Redman, who was going to get the jo- the job to replace um, uh, Sam. And Luigi Canetti told me that. 
uh, Hobbs wanted eleven hundred, and Brian would do it for a thousand. So Brian got the uh, Brian got the gig. <laughs> yeah. Well, and he does say it. Brian Redmond does have a saying. Uh, when he when he went into motor racing, he had two objectives. One was to to uh, to get rich, and the other one was to stay alive. And he claims that he's. He's achieved only one of those things. It was fifty percent. <laughs> well, that's that's not bad. Yeah, yeah, bad. yeah, absolutely. Now, in uh, in nineteen seventy seven, the series was recast as a single seat sports car series, which is an anathema to me. But that's uh, that's beside the point. <laughs> well, you're going you know, back to the Z, you and Charles dressing. Yeah, you and you and Charles dressing and all the other Can Am purists uh, thought that the. Uh, Second iteration of Can Am in 1977 was a uh, was an anathema. How did it shape up when it compared to the Bruce and Denny show, Joe? Oh, that's a tough one. Um, I, I'm not sure it did. And and when certainly when I think of Can Am, I think of the 1966 to 74 series. I think of the Bruce and Denny show. I think of everything we've just talked about. And then I have to be reminded about the the uh, series that ran from 77 to 87. And, you know, all right, Chuck um, is probably, Chuck and other people are probably, you know, the, the fact that they, they didn't like the second iteration of Can-Am is probably because the first iteration of Can-Am was kind of pure and proper. Um, I think you have to look at it from a business sense. And at the time with the Can-Am series kind of fading away and dissolving, at that time, 75, 76, the Formula 5000 series in the United States was really strong. Uh, and at that time, IndyCar or um, USAC, as it was, was mainly confined to ovals. So single seater cars on ovals and Formula 5000 was the road racing series. And Jim will keep me right on this if I've got this right. Um Formula 5000 was in the doldrums a little bit, and there was a little bit of malaise there, and Can-Am was kind of non-existent. And it was kind of like, once again, I'll use the term, the planets aligning to bring the series together. You had all these Formula 5000 cars that if you then put an all-enveloping body on them, they became a single-seat sports car. And the Lola T333, the Lola T530, um, and also some cars that came along um in later periods in group group c cars start to enter the fray uh and one of the frisbee is the one that i think of when i think about that which was almost a closed car um yeah. but it was a, the, the the concept was a single seat or a formula a five liter five thousand cc engine in the back of a single seat uh race car let's plunk a body on it and it looks very similar to what we saw between 1966 and 74. So aesthetically, we're back to sports car racing, but underneath, peel, peel the sticker back, and it's kind of like a bodied single-seater because that's what it was. Yeah, that's, I'll, that's, I'll tell you what, that uh, that the idea of a single-seater sports car, it's a, it's a bit like alcohol-free wine or local bacon, <laughs> isn't it? You know, it's, it's, it, just, it just isn't right. <laughs> it's certainly... Turkey bacon, it, turkey bacon and sports car racing right there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true, Jim. You hit the nail on... Go ahead, Joe, sorry. Go on, no, no, go on. What did I hit the nail on the head, Jim? Well, you said it was about business. Um, yes, you, it is. You, you had the Formula 5000 series that, that took over from the Can-Am in 75 and 76. And again, with the USAC cart wars and all of that stuff starting to, to foment and whatnot, 
that people started to get scared, particularly Carl Haas. Uh, Carl Haas was a Lola importer. And if you look at the first four years of, the, of that second seat Can-Am, 77, 78, 79, and 80, Carl Haas Racing and Lola T33s or T530s won the Can-Am Championship. So, so Carl saw an opportunity. He was able to hold sway with the SCCA. This whole thing started at the behest of Carl as a way to sell cars. Now, it did expand, and like you say, the Frisbee came along. Count Vanderstraten, uh, they, they, uh, out of Texas, they did their own cars, the, the VDS cars. Um, but that was, you know, Al Unser Jr. Uh, took his first major championship in 82, driving uh, for Gallus Racing, who he went on to win the Indy 500 for in a, in a Frisbee. <clears throat> Pardon me, John Morton did, was quite successful. He never won the championship, but he won a lot of races in a Frisbee. Jacques Villeneuve Sr. won the 83 title. Uh, and, and then it, it, it's, it started to wane. The last four years were, were a little bit of a mishmash. Um, and you started to see some cars show up. Like you said, uh, uh, Bill Tempero won the 87 championship driving a March 85C. Well, that was, a, that was a, basically a Group C car that they chopped the top off and, yeah. and, 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 and ran it around. So it, 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 it took 10 years to run its course. But those those early those early days of of the can of the of the second generation Can Am from from about seventy seven to 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 eighty three uh, yeah. maybe eighty four when Michael Rowe won the championship in a in a VDS um, that was probably that that was its best that 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 was its best era and as a as a person who only got to see a little bit of the of the Can Am because of, of of being able to go to Watkins Glen for a couple of years when I was, when I was really young to see these cars uh, racing and the racing was good. That was the other thing. The racing was good. You had a lot of, uh, a lot of cars competitive. Uh, you had, um, you know, Al Holbert, people like that raced in the series. So there were a lot of, you know, Patrick Tambay, Alan Jones, Jackie Itz, and Patrick Tambay, Jeff Brabham, Alan Sir Jr. Those are your first uh, six <laughs> champions of the series. Not a bad, yeah. not a bad group. Yeah, that's uh, that's pretty good. And of course, quite a few of the the old school move over, moved over as well, didn't they? In uh, that the people who'd driven the the original Can Am cars were uh, were back into the single seaters as well. Oh, a- exactly. I can remember being at a test session uh, at the Glen with Al Unser Senior in the second generation Can Am, and it was in a it was in a a, a frisbee. And he came in and um, there was the front of the car was all pink and red and nasty. And it was a white car. And we're like, what happened? He'd hit a woodchuck on the back straightaway. <laughs> and the top half of the woodchuck was in his lap. And the bottom half oh, of the woodchuck was all oh, over the front of the car. No. So, yes. Oh, dear. Yeah. Was, yeah. Was, yeah. was there much money in that second? I mean, you just have to look at some of the drivers that were driving. Theo Fabi, Danny Sullivan, Al Albert, uh, Jeff Brabham. You know, the names that continued on into uh, IMSA GTP racing uh, oh, after this. There was a um, lot. A lot of sponsorship money, Joe. Yeah, Budweiser, I mean, Budweiser was huge in was the series because of Paul right. Newman. Paul Newman yeah. was one of the car owners. Uh, yeah, there was there was there was good money and the not prize money. The prize money was shite. But but um, the, the so drivers like Patrick Tombe, Alan. I'm going to read down 77 to 84. The champions 
from each year, right? And and it's it's like a it's like a who's who of of Formula One as well as Can Am. Patrick Tombay, Alan Jones, Jack Ex, Patrick Tombay, Jeff Brabham, Alonso Junior, Jacques Villeneuve Senior, who became a well-known driver over here in the UK through IndyCar, and Michael Rowe, who was already a name in the in Europe and certainly in the UK through the uh, the, the Junior Formula. Um, I take it it was money from sponsorship, um, not prize money, that attracted that kind of caliber of driver to that series. Oh, with, without a doubt. Without a doubt. About the only self-funded program was VDS. Everybody else was running uh, big sponsor programs. Garvin Brown, uh, he of the, the, the whiskey mm-hmm. fortune, uh, was Danny Sullivan's car owner. Uh, so, yeah, there was a lot of – there were there were a lot of uh, – um, there were a lot of sponsored teams, and there were a couple of teams that had rich benefactors. Uh, this series brought us Jim Truman, uh, yes. he, he of the uh, yeah. uh, and Bobby Rahal. Um, In the two, he won the two liter class. They had a, yes, so it was yeah. a multi class series. But 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 he brought brought him in as a car owner as well, and went on to win the Indy Five Hundred with with Bobby Rahal. Um, so yeah, this was a uh, th- this series, despite you know, people poo-pooing it had a, a lot of foundation for, for a lot of people to go on to, you know, Jeff Brabham. That was his introduction to the United States. He went on to be very successful in the Nissan, in the IMSA series. Uh, Alan Jr., uh, people know what he was able to accomplish. So, yeah. so this was, uh, this, this was a, a very good grounding series for, for a lot of, a lot of people uh, to get an opportunity to race uh, in, in, what at the time was big time sports car racing. I, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. part of the reason I love the series so much is because I got to work on a film called Circuit that was a, a, a feature length documentary that was financed by Budweiser and Paul Newman and some other people. It was my first job out of college. And um, the, the, the movie for, for being a, it was very much in the mode of, uh, of, uh, Lamar in that there was very little dialogue. It was based on, on interviews and it told the story of, uh, of the series, I believe, uh, in 80, 80 or 81. And, um, uh, Pateo Fabi, uh, like I say, Newman, uh, Danny Sullivan played, played a big part. Uh, all these people had, had roles. The, the, the director of the film was a guy by the name of Barry Landon. And he very, very much fancied himself the next Steve McQueen when it came to making racing films. And uh, <laughs> that may that maybe isn't a compliment when it comes to box office. Uh, but uh, you, you said at the beginning, Jim, and uh, that Canam started with some, let's say, aerodynamic instability. Um, and Joe, I know that that you've uh, you've had a look at, at some of those cars, and that we we uh, we heard from Brian Redman the story about his accident in Jim Hall's car in 1977. I get a call from Roger Penske. And as we know, the 917.30 and 917.10 turbo Can-Am cars are effectively banned from Can-Am because they put a fuel restriction on to stop them. So he said, Brian, would you like to drive the 917.30 Penske Donahue car at mid-Ohio in July? I said, yeah, but it can't race. He just said it can race, come and see me. So I go up to Reading, Pennsylvania. I sit down, this polished desk, nothing on it, Mr. Penske's. Brian, he said, would you like me? I said, 
Yes, he said, it can race. Don't worry about that. I said, oh, okay. And he said, how much do you want? So I said, uh, $5,000. He said, Brian, you're the most reasonable racing driver I ever met. So we go to mid-Ohio, and Mark Donahue is the team manager, and he's not happy. I mean, we're hardly speaking. The car was terrific. It had just been pulled out of storage, you know, and prepared for the race, but not, you know, not. So we, get, we managed to qualify it on pole position. And then we win the first heat race because it rained. And uh, I took it fairly easy because of the, you know, 1,100 horsepower in the rain at mid-Ohio for the first time. And so the final comes, I start on pole. And I've got Jackie Oliver and George Falmer with me. So off we go. Well, quite early in the race, round the back of the track, there's a hump. And the car had tremendous throttle lag. And because of that, you had to open the throttle a long time before you wanted the power, you know, and try and time it so that when the power came in, you were more or less straight. So after the, uh, the damp, after the wet heat race, I said to Mark, because it was wet for the final, I said, what happens if the track dries out to the handling and we groove the slick tyres? And he said, nothing. Well, as we got going in the race, the track was drying. And first of all, I, I almost lost it, going over the hump at the back of the track with Fulmer and Oliver behind me. So I opened the throttle too soon before the weight was back on the wheels, a fraction too soon, tenth of a second probably. Then it went sideways, you know, as all this power came in. So I got the track sideways. Whilst I'm sorting it out, Fulmer and Oliver come past me. And now I'm behind them. And well, you know, I'm there at it, hammer and tongues. And there's an end of the straight, you go right, you go over a hump, down to a 90-degree right-hander where you can't pass. And George tried to pass Jackie Oliver there and hit him, boom, in the side. And it took George out, broke his bodywork. But as the track dried, the handling went to hell. And what Mark and the team had done to the handling, they'd found something in that when you turned into a fastish corner, let's say turn one at mid-Ohio, 120 miles an hour, you got off the power, you're on the brakes and you turn and immediately the car would start to oversteer very gently like this. So it made it easy to time putting the power on, you know. The back end's gently coming around, just a bit of opposite lock. Well, with the grooving the slick tyres, it wrecked that fine balance. Now, all it did was understeer like a pig. All it did was go like this. Oh, I finished second to, to Oliver. It was very disappointing. If we hadn't grooved the slicks, which is partly my decision. We'd have been in great shape. I got to tell you, gentlemen, hearing that story from Brian Redman and having spent time with Brian, he is without a doubt to me the br- bravest race car driver I've I've ever met. Here's a guy who retired from the sport three times, all three times because he thought he was going to get killed in the sport. And he found that this was really still the best way for him to make a living. So he sucked it up, belted up, and went back at it and made money. And I, I got to tell you, that that is what courage is. When you go out and do something that you are scared of and you just kind of, you know, mm. tighten it up and yeah. go do it week in and week out, that's, that's, that's bravery and courage at, at the max right there. That that's a good that's a very good point, Jim. And I'm going to completely uh, recircle and consider that when the Can-Am series started in 1966, when we had a, a clean sheet of paper as to what 
the designers and the engineers could do. And there was people like Jim Hall, who um, his career finished after a huge shunt, didn't it? Um, he went over the back of um, a, uh, Luther Matzenbacher. Yeah, it, Luther Matzenbacher. Yes, yeah. and it was Matzenbacher suspension field. And that put the car, it, and Jim Hall went over the back of him. Um, that had nothing it? to do with design innovation. But what, what I mean is when, when these guys put the, you know, let, let's try this. Um, and Laguna Seca, for, have a look and just look it up, everybody, or listeners. Have a look for Jim Hall's car from the Laguna Seca race in, I think it was 69. I'm just going to confirm that. And have a look for the most ridiculous wing you'll ever see on a race car. It was. It, it was the biggest wing I've, that has ever been put on a race car. But my point is that these guys were, were kind of talking, you know, whether, whether it was over a beer or something a lot stronger. Um, <laughs> you know, let, shall we try this? That's going to work. What if we do this? What if we do that? And then these guys, back in the early days, were test pilots. They yeah, were they were. You're right. Test Boy, howdy. It's a very good way of putting it. To, to be able to, to do that and, and have fun doing it, because, you know, I, I go back to that um, Amelia Island forum. There, there's lots of people there, old guys. George Fulmer's on the table, and they all pretty much hark back to those days when they were racing in this series, and they used the word fun. The cars were just fun to drive by themselves on a racetrack, let alone race them. We'll, um, we'll put the links. Phenomenal time. We'll put the links for uh, for those those videos on our Good Facebook idea. page, on the Historic Racing News Facebook page, so uh, you can have a look at those. But, gentlemen, yeah, there were arguably two or three iterations of Can Am um, pre and post Porsche. Uh, there were twenty championship seasons. Um, Success or glorious failure? I, I, I'll start this off and I'll say it was a success by virtue that here we are 50 years later almost. Yeah. <laughs> um, we're still talking about it and we're still getting excited. And I've got to say, Paul, when we decided to, to uh, create this special, I have absolutely loved researching this period of racing. And reading about it, and you know, you've got all of that footage available on on YouTube. Just go and have a look. If you if this is if hopefully we've um, we've started off uh, a bit of interest for our younger listeners into this period of racing. It's worth it's worth having a look at these cars and what they were about and the people that were involved in it. It was it was a halcyon period, I think. Um, so for me. It was a success from a sporting side and kind of looking back at a motorsport history side. You'd have to ask someone who was involved and spent a lot of money, thousands and hundreds of thousands of pounds, uh, or dollars, I should say, um, as to whether it was a, a success from the business side of things. Jim, I, what do you think? I think it was a glorious success. Um, mm. I think it was the foundation for a lot of things that we have today would there be a mclaren formula one team if there wasn't the success of the mclaren can-am team that could be argued and all Um, that prize money jim and all that prize money um you know would there be 
uh, many of the innovations that 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 we have seen, like you said, the the, the pass flap, the the <laughs> you know the stuff. All that is new is old. You know, all that is old is new again, or however that old saying goes. But um, I think that it was it was a glorious time. Uh, we always look back upon you know, oh gosh, it was better in the old days. Well, it, in, in this case, it really was. This was a, a huge, a huge success. And I think the, the second iteration of Can-Am was also a success uh, because it served mm. a purpose. And it, it's a link from the past to the, to the, to the then present um, that I think was successful in its own way. And again, brought us, it, it allowed people to um, get an entree into other forms of, of racing because the people who who were successful in that second Can-Am went on to dominate CART and the Indy 500 for many years after that. So I think that um, as a whole, both were a, were, were a rousing success. The Historic Racing News Radio Show. This has been an insight special into the Can-Am races. I'd like to thank Jim Roller and Joe Bradley for sharing their thoughts and their enthusiasm, without which none of this would be worthwhile. I'd also like to thank Andrew Marriott for his on-the-spot memories and most of all, of course, our very special guest, Brian Redman. As always, if you have been, thank you for listening. Our next Historic Racing News Radio Show special will be... uh, We'll be coming up next month. Our usual magazine edition is in two weeks' time when we'll talk about the matters of moment and our insight special for the month of June will be all about the monster of sports car racing, the Porsche 917. So from all the team and from me, Paul Tarsi, bye for now. (laughs) 